0: The number one search is always need To Garcha, Age. I think a lot of people really? wonder. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Jordan Armstrong gets that a lot as well. He's <laughs> got this very
1: baby face, yeah. Broadcaster yeah. voice and
0: then baby face.
1: This is Van Collar. the West Coast. <laughs> My name is Moamir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by one of my favorite news personalities in this province. I was going to call her a rising star, but the truth is, she is a big star. A multimedia journalist who has hopped around from the Okanagan to Vancouver Island to right here in Metro Vancouver. She has covered everything from crime to politics to breaking news and international crises. In 2016, she traveled to Greece to be on the front lines of Europe's refugee crisis, where she produced a series with an on the ground look at the crisis. In 2015, she produced a series filmed in Haiti about a school built by volunteers and its connection to an elementary classroom in BC. With a weakness for chocolate, she also carries the crown of Miss Penticton. She has been with Global News since 2013. She's the current morning news anchor for Global BC. She is Nitu Garcha Neetu. Oh my goodness, I'm blushing. How are you?
0: Wow, what an intro. I'm I'm <laughs> great. It's so surreal to be in this studio. I've listened to so many episodes of your podcast. Oh, I'm and humbled by that. Thank just you. Just seeing the caliber of guests that you have had on. I'm I am truly humbled and honored to be here. Thanks for having me. That's why you're here. There, you're here. Oh,
1: thank you. <laughs> Can you tell how excited I am? Can you tell how excited I am? The Feeling is mutual. <laughs> Well, I am happy to see you. It's always weird for me to meet someone that I've seen on TV or like (laughs) heard for so long. It's always surreal for me. Do you feel like you know me? Sort of. (laughs) I feel like I want to get to know you a little more. Well, it's a good thing I'm here. I'm at your disposal. (laughs) I do also have to thank you. Obviously, I was a fan before, but I became a mega fan once you shouted me out on global Aww, news in the morning, yes. unreal, surreal. <laughs>
0: Well-deserved. And you were already incorporated into the chorus family at that time because you're a regular contributor on CKNW That's as right. well. Yeah. But regardless, um, I, I think anybody that comes across your podcast has uh, similar reactions, at least from what I've heard. It's that they're in awe and can't wait to see where you take this. Now I'm glad <laughs> We're just going to be tooting each other's horn throughout this, yeah, aren't exactly.
1: <laughs> Listeners just tune out. A funny thing that happened when you gave me a shout out. I didn't see it live. I'm sorry. I missed it. Oh, but, I thought you did. But I had a succession of three texts oh, did you? from ex-girlfriends. So it was like, you know, for, like sort of first thing in the morning, I'm looking at my phone and I'm like, what? why am I getting these three texts? Oh my goodness. So it was, uh, yeah, a weird moment. Definitely a weird thing. And then I saw the clip afterwards and I was like, oh my God. That's hilarious. So speaking of weird mornings. Oh boy. You had one very recently. Yes. So you're having a conversation about mobility pricing, super sexy with former Vancouver city councilor, Gordon Price. And he's on zoom and describe sort of what's happening. Like, it's a pretty kind of dry policy conversation. Some people love it, but generally speaking, it's a little dry. What happens? What's your
0: reaction? Oh, boy. Okay. You know, I have to say, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because our viewers who tuned in that morning saw something that is inappropriate and that we would otherwise never broadcast on television. It was nudity. Mm -hmm. And we cut away from that the moment we realized what was happening. (laughs) And I think a lot of people who aren't on social media and didn't see the speculatory explanations of what might have happened there were really left puzzled. What did I see on Global News Morning? (laughs) So I do want to explain from my perspective that I have not spoken with that interviewee since then. But what I understand Understand happened uh, based on my conversations with my producer and control room team who were directly in communication with him after we were on air, uh, talking about actually the city of Vancouver's climate action plan. Uh, this guest was on via uh, Zoom, mm-hmm. and there is a green screen backdrop that you can use. <laughs> and this guest, I believe, was under the impression that once you've got this green screen backdrop up, anything that's behind you will not be visible. Mm -hmm. Only the backdrop will be. However, I believe that whenever skin, a person's skin comes into contact with this green screen backdrop, the skin actually overrides the backdrop and you see whatever's there. So for me, I'm sitting there at the news desk. When I ask an interviewee a question, I'm off camera, but I'm still looking at the preview screen, seeing them. So I'm watching him answer and I saw something in what was my, the right hand corner of my preview screen. I thought it was his arm go up and I'm thinking, okay, he's probably scratching his head or something. I I didn't think much of it. Then I saw something that made my jaw drop. (laughs) I was in (laughs) awe and I froze. Uh, It was a completely nude man on the television screen. Um, It was this interviewee's partner who uh, perhaps just came out of the shower. I'm not sure the circumstances of what happened there, um, but I had to ask by mouthing to my control room, please turn off my microphone um, because I had no idea what was happening. And they said, we're just going to roll the footage and not go back to his interview screen. Keep doing the interview until the clock time's out and we'll throw it a commercial break. So that's what we did. (laughs) And then, you know, Mo, when things happen in our lives for the first time, when we experience something initially, Mm -hmm. we learn a lot about ourselves, right? Based on our reaction, especially if it's unexpected. Yeah. I learned that day my maturity level isn't quite where I thought, I thought it would be because I lost my mind a little bit. I, I had giggles on air and I, I had a hard time making it through.
1: <laughs> I'm having giggles hearing the story again, right? And I knew what happened. But I, how could anyone blame you? Like, you're not expecting that uh, I was
0: wholly unprepared for that. Absolutely. <laughs> and social media plays a factor too, because people are tweeting out jokes and photos of yeah. it. And it, it was hard to make it through the broadcast. <laughs> um, and I, I just hope.
1: But you guys were pretty quick. I mean, I think it was a couple seconds and then immediately yes. the, the camera cut to some stock footage or some footage from outside. Yes. Yeah. It's good that the man in question didn't turn around. It was mostly oh a full moonshot, right? Which is like, you could still get away with that. There's still yeah. like, a, it's a lot more humorous in a way.
0: It would have taken a turn, uh, I think, closer <laughs> towards the CRTC if that had have happened. Yeah.
1: Did, <laughs> did anyone get in trouble? Does something like this create new Protocols or how you approach guests when they come on Zoom, like what what happens when when something like that happens?
0: Yeah, great question. I think. That conversation was between our executive producer and my producer of the morning show. Mm. And I think he jokingly answered the phone when he got the call from the executive producer saying, how fired am I? (laughs) But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the team acted accordingly, cutting away from it as soon as they could, not returning to that shot. And then we went straight to commercial break. (laughs) Um, The moment we realized what that was, we cut away from it. And that's all you can do because it was completely unexpected. I think from everybody's perspective, from the interviewee, uh, I I don't, there were some people saying they thought it might have been intentional from my understanding it was not at all it was a complete accident and Mm -hmm. we had no idea they had no idea and we acted accordingly so I think that's what you do is the moment (laughs) something like that happens uh, if someone drops uh, a an expletive or the F-bomb, you also have to react accordingly because CRTC regulations are what they are. So you just have to be prepared to cut away from something very quickly. And that is part of the reason why there is a slight delay before that broadcast reaches our audience.
1: Right. (laughs) And that's sort of the same thing with any live hit. Yes. Right? Like, as funny as that is and sort of as new as that is, like, this has been happening with live hits anyways. Like, there have been live hits with streakers that go through or someone saying in a something inappropriate or whatever, like that's, I guess, the nature of the business, right? Exactly. But I think with Zoom, it's just so much, it's new in the sense that you don't see this background suddenly turn into a naked man. Oh boy, it's a very
0: 2020 thing to have happened. And I just hope that um, both this interviewee and their partner are not... um, going through a difficult time because of this, right. that they are also laughing it off or maybe just able to move on from it. Uh, again, I have not had communication with this interview subject since, so I'm not sure. I read um, some
1: follow-up articles. Yeah. It sounded like they took it with good humor. And again, it could have been a lot worse. Absolutely. So. <laughs> and I think they're just
0: hoping that the focus remains on the city of Vancouver's climate action plan, sure. which is the topic of That's the That's one way
1: to sell it, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perspective is everything, isn't it?
1: One of the things that I really admire about you and one thing that I think you do so well is how you grill politicians. You took Andrew Shear's soul. Like, you brought up his kids and how he'd have to explain to his kids how he ran a dirty campaign on lies, and you could literally see his soul leaving his body oh, on boy. air on television. <laughs> and then in September, you you give... B.C. Premier John Horgan, the full court press. He fared a lot better. I think he did okay, But he was trying to talk about what he wanted to talk about. And you reined him right in. You interrupted him. You said, no, no, you got to answer the question. Is that your natural interview style? because mine is giggling. (laughs) Apparently
0: mine is too, depending on the day. I don't think of my interview style based on how firm or soft I am. I think of my interview style as one where I try my best to do a service to the public and hold an interviewee to account, particularly Mm. if they were a politician or a person with significant power. Um, And I personally don't understand why some of the interviews I've done have become the subject of such debate or controversy or attention um, or sharing (laughs) on social media. I I just very much feel like I'm doing my job the the best way I know how and I move on to the next thing and and look forward to the next interview and and that's it. But it seems to garner a lot of attention either way. And I'm not sure if it's because uh, people aren't used to that from me personally Hmm. uh, or if it has something to do. Do with the way I look like look or my age. I'm not sure what it is, but for me, I don't think of my interview style as as hardball or softball or anything in terms of the firmness of the interviews I do. I have a very strong sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. This podcast is being recorded on a Thursday. I hope it's okay. I say that November sure, November fine. 12th, the day after Remembrance Day. Uh, we are all still reflecting on the sacrifices that were made for our country and the mm-hmm. freedoms that we enjoy today. Every single day of my life, I wake up. thinking of those sacrifices, but also those of my family members. Uh, you all can't see this at home, but <laughs> I've got a tattoo on my right wrist. And in Punjabi, it's written out Bibbi, which means grandmother. Okay. And she passed away in 2017, but she helped raise me. And she, along with my parents, really, really paved the path for my siblings and I and gave up so much for us. And that I have been able to work hard and achieve what I have is mm-hmm. huge because in certain countries, you can work hard, but you, corruption, will get in the way and you will not be able to, or you can become a journalist, but there is no freedom of the press. We have an incredible democracy in this country and I value that so much. And that is what I put at the forefront when I'm interviewing uh, a politician or a person in power, anybody who I'm trying to hold to account, any story I do, my goal is to try and serve my purpose as a journalist in society. Mm -hmm. And and that is to shed light on the truth. And if I'm asking a a question, the way I I prepare, you know, if any BCIT students are listening or anybody (laughs) who curious about my my methodology of how I prepare for these kind of interviews. I listen to interviews they've done in Mm. the days and weeks leading up to my opportunity to have them on our platform. And I listen carefully to the answers and make sure that I ask a question that is different because I don't want to hear the same talking notes or same messaging that we have already heard. I try Mm -hmm. to push the story forward or push the interview forward or get questions that still linger even after all these interviews answered. Yeah, And that's, that's just my job. I'm just doing my job.
1: Yeah. And I find with politicians, that's often my strategy as well, or at least I try to do that as much as possible. And sometimes it's tough because, you know, when you talk to a John Horgan or a Jody Wilson-Raybould, they've been asked everything. Right. <laughs> so you have to find a new angle or, or get into it. I guess one of the things that makes it so spectacular when you grill these guys, maybe it's the the nature of like the morning show that people see it as a little more casual. And I also think that there are a lot of people who watch media and still don't understand the difference between like a journalist and a broadcaster and an editorialist. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And morning show, and, and I'm not taking anything away from anyone, but like morning show anchors, we're not sure if they're hard hitting journalists or if they're, you know, maybe they do have a background in, in journalism, but they're just hosting a morning show and it's a lot lighter. I don't know. I'm not sure why they resonate as as hard. It's it's one of those things where maybe you just don't expect hardball in the morning.
0: (laughs) That could be very much it. And, you know, morning shows are traditionally known to be much lighter in nature. People are just getting their day started. But if you've got someone who's vying for the public's votes Mm -hmm. to be able to make decisions that affect their lives, particularly in the midst of a global pandemic... There's no way you're not going to give them an opportunity to really give honest, sincere answers to the most pressing, some of the most pressing questions that Mm -hmm. the public want answered. Uh, Two of the interviews that you've brought up of mine were during elections, Mm -hmm. Um, either someone seeking re-election or looking to oust the uh, incumbent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that, regardless of what time of day or what show uh, they come on to try and get their message on our platform. They need to be held to account. And the number of communications professionals versus journalists in society is alarming. When you look at the contrast between the two, there are exponentially more, it seems like in some cases, communications professionals versus journalists. And that's scary. That's where the money is, right? Absolutely. And Mo, I have to say, I have experienced attacks on my profession when I'm out in the field, people yelling fake news or questioning us doing our job or being where we are significantly more since Donald Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. And the attacks on journalists in the US, hundreds of them probably since May, since the protests after the passing of George Floyd, yeah. um, really are alarming. And, and and the role of journalism in society is perhaps more important than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. And I, I really feel that e- even on a lighthearted morning show when I've got an interview subject on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I'm one of those people that feels like everyone should understand the basics of media literacy. Everyone should be critical, but it's come to a point where people think being critical is just yelling fake news. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. It's like, what are you basing this argument on?
1: They're being hypercritical on a media, but then they're going to believe the QAnon conspiracy they're exactly. not being, They're not using the same critical thought there right yeah so it becomes really tough when we talk about that anchor role from my understanding you don't necessarily have to be a journalist to be in that like morning news anchor or evening news anchor can you explain sort of the overlap or the requirements in terms of being a journalist versus just being an anchor on on and yeah. Not just being an anchor, right. but being right. an anchor. The difference between the yeah. two. I think
0: that's really important. And I think a lot of our colleagues at CKNW who host the talk shows in the afternoon have to explain this probably every a single lot. day or multiple <laughs> times a day because they are paid to express their opinion on the stories that they tell. At the mm-hmm. top and bottom of the hour, when you hear the newscast with the C- from the CKNW newsroom, those are journalists who are not editorializing. They are presenting the facts and and in the most fair and balanced way they can. There's a difference there. On the television side, it's less clear, less nuanced, I guess. Um, It's more... I guess, connected, Uh, we're all journalists, Um, whether we're news anchors or reporters on the TV side, none of us really should be giving our opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, you know, these moments where we can have a discussion with Mark Madriga when you're throwing to weather and kind of give your remarks on a story that just played, but typically it's more lighthearted and it's a very general comment, Um, nothing to do with the politics or- um, You've shown a lot of bias
1: towards the sun, by the way. (laughs) Like you're really biased towards the sun? My
0: favorite weather is stormy (laughs) weather without the storm, actually, when it's like cloudy and about to hit. (laughs) But it's it's true. I think our meteorologists also get that from people too, where they're like, why are you speaking so negatively about the rain? I love the rain. Oh, wow. Interesting. You have to be balanced in almost everything you do. But on the radio side, there is a clear divide. Yeah. The talk show hosts are paid to give their opinions. On the TV side, the news anchors and the reporters are journalists who should not be giving their opinions or editorializing stories. Hmm. Um, we are supposed to be fair and and, and balanced.
1: Okay, yeah, and I think it's important to know that. Like, even I was sort of unclear of what the role of a news anchor is. Right, right. right. I mean, I certainly understood the radio side a, a lot clearer, but it is interesting. And and people, like I said, they'll think that they're being hypercritical, but they don't even understand how the the frameworks are.
0: Absolutely, and, and I,
1: I- I'll get. Literally, I will get you are biased, you're not being fair, and I'm like, I think I'm being fair, but also I'm an editorialist. Like I'm supposed to be giving an opinion. Right. And you can argue that opinion. That's totally fair. But there's going to be bias expressed in that opinion.
0: Exactly. And I should make it clear that I'm speaking only for global television. If sure. you throw on CNN or another network, it's totally different. Yeah. Those anchors very much editorialize <laughs> yeah. and the content, whether it's hard news or not. So it really depends on the
1: outlet. Um, and they almost purposely blur the lines. Yes, Right? Like, so. like when you look at Fox News, they have their news report. Reporting, which actually is pretty decent. And then they have their, okay, you're giving me a look. I've watched Fox News here and there just to see like what the fuss is about because it's in my cable package. Right. And I thought their news reporting was actually okay. But right. then you would get to like the Tucker Carlson or yeah. the Hannity. Yeah. And they present it as news, but it is it's, like full editorial and really taking a lot of creative license with the news as well. Exactly.
0: On both sides. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. CNN and Fox, I find uh, both do that. And um, I'm sorry to hear that you also experience that uneducated backlash, I guess, from people who don't really understand your role as a podcast host.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of the gig, right? And and sometimes I don't mind engaging with people and letting them know, like, well, as a podcast host, I have no journalistic responsibility. I try to be fair to every guest and I think I am. And then when I'm on the radio or writing for Vancouver is awesome, I'm there to give an opinion. And so I'm going to try to give an opinion. (laughs) And that's why I'm there. Like they don't want me, I'm not not a journalist. They're not having me there to, to be a journalist. They have tons of those. So, you know, it does take a little bit of education for people and, Again, even with a base education, it can still be confusing, like I said, with the morning anchors, because un- I was unsure where their role is. Going back to this idea of interviews, setting aside just hammering at politicians, <laughs> do you have like a philosophy when you conduct interviews? What's your mindset? Is there a general framework that you work with?
0: Great question. I don't think there is a general framework. I think it really varies depending on the interview. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if there's any constant, it's what... Matters to people? What questions do people have about this issue? And how can I ensure that that question gets answered? I think very hard about what I see coming in into our assignment desk emails uh, that have been forwarded around our Facebook um, account. I have access to that and I read the messages Mm -hmm, there. What I see on Twitter, what I've heard from people out in the field, um, what I know to be a longstanding issue. I think about what impacts people, what questions do they need answered. And I also serve the public in, in a very different way from a politician, but it's very much, how can I do a service to the people who have so graciously allowed us to enter the most intimate settings of their lives in their kitchens, in their living rooms, in their homes? It's an honor every day to be able to do that. So right. how, can, how can I use my platform to serve them is kind of my mindset going into any interview, whether it's lighthearted <laughs> or a hard, uh, hard news story, whatever it is.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. So you really do have the audience mind, Oh, when absolutely. you're an In
0: every moment that I'm on air. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's so counter to what I do.
0: <laughs> what do you mean?
1: I mean, I do consider the audience, but I don't try to get myself wrapped up in like, what's going to be popular? What's going to, mm. what are people looking for? I try to think about what I'm looking for. And just hope that that resonates.
0: Clearly it has. And clearly it's representative (laughs) of what people want to know about.
1: Well, a certain segment of people, maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just feel like if, and again, that's a freedom that I have as opposed to being cling to uh, an assignment desk, right? Where you do have to cover a, a lot of different things. I'm only in this booth once a week. I get to cover whatever I want. So I have that freedom of like really exploring people at issues that I'm passionate about.
0: Right. Could I ask you the same question? And I'm sorry to bounce it back at you, but yeah. I'm curious by nature, what is your framework that you operate within <laughs> when you book your guests or come up
1: with your questions? The joke, the running joke is I want to induce a guest to talk shit <laughs> or to cry. Really? Yeah, and I don't mean that in a mean way. What I mean is I want them to get fired up. I want them to bring a certain vulnerability. I think those conversations, especially in a long-form conversation, are really captivating and compelling. And obviously, there are some episodes where there are a lot more issue-based, but even then, to get a personal story or a personal point of view, Mm -hmm. I think, is, is where I find I can differentiate myself from what's on TV and radio. So I'm trying to use this medium to my advantage and where my strengths lay. And I think my strengths lay in having a more personal, emotional conversation. And so that's that's how I frame it. But again, I'm doing something that's completely different than what you're doing, right?
0: And the fact that you're doing something completely different is I think exactly what people crave. And that's part of the reason you've had so much success. There are many reasons behind that, I think, but you've, you've gained a lot of traction over a short period of time. And there's a reason for that. It's the real stuff that you go after the well, real life emotions and comments. And well,
1: thank you for um, that. I, and, and I think they're complementary, right? Like right. I, I think it's not that I'm cutting into anyone's pie or anything like that. It's like right. this very much complements. What global does, what any other network does. And I'm, I'm fortunate that global and CKNW were able to see that and, and have me on board as, a, as a contributor as well, because I'm not. I can't compete with Linda Steele. I can't compete <laughs> with Me Too Garcia. I can't compete with Sophie Louie, right? Like there's, or Sam Cooper. That's not, I don't have the skill set to do that. But what I can do is something a little different that's outside of their wheelhouse or outside of the, the programming that you're given, right?
0: Absolutely. And we're so lucky to have you. Do you ha- have a journalism background no. or a broadcasting <laughs> background or what's your experience? I, I have
1: a background in talking shit and crying. Okay, so there that's... you go.
0: <laughs> and that is why so many people can relate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I no, I I'm doing this for fun. But I appreciate those kind words. That's um that's nice for you to say.
0: Of course, I'm just speaking the truth. And you know, sometimes when you head towards what brings you joy, that is what brings you the most success as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's always been low stakes for me, you know, right. because it's not attached to my paycheck. Right. So you I'm able job. to exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm able to take risks and, and have fun. And that's what it comes down to.
0: That's fantastic. Okay. I'll let you get back to asking the question. Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. You're, soon you'll be grilling me on stuff. <laughs> Sorry. I'll be uh, I'll be Andrew Shear over here, just like, well, I don't like the premise of your question. Oh jeez. <laughs> you had to listen to the Jill Crop episode, right? I did, yes. I love that you were brought up. I want to sort of ask you an open-ended question. What did you think about that discussion around systemic discrimination, whether it's based on gender or race?
0: Uh, Well, I appreciated so much having that opportunity to hear my former boss, who just recently left uh, Global BC, speak so candidly about what that. Uh, was like for her um, going through a lot of the um, experiences she did leading a group and, and in the midst of an international reckoning on, on racial justice mm-hmm. and, and certain instances that happened within um, our, our company, um, I, generally speaking, as, as you've asked... Um, Systemic racism exists. It's it's there and it's everywhere. Um, over the course of my career, when I was a student, I've experienced ageism, sexism, racism on numerous occasions. Some of it blatant, uh, some of it more subtle. Um, and I think now is a moment where, uh, and we heard Jill speak very humbly about this, and I appreciated her sentiments a decision needs to be made. Are Mm -hmm. you going to be a dismantler or are you going to be complicit? And it's a moral decision, um, but there is action that needs to be taken and and there needs to be genuine intent behind that.
1: One of the things I found fascinating about that episode and that conversation was that it really highlighted how messy (laughs) and complicated and how different this big issue is for every organization every large organization I should say and there is no clear linear solution and even when we talk about groups whether it's women or the LGBTQ community or people of color but even you know narrowing it down to south asian folks like right everyone has a different type of perspective on this and that's what i think makes it so challenging and i think it's one of those things where We have to continue to work on it. Like, it's never Mm. like, do these three steps and now we're done. (laughs)
0: If only, hey?
1: Yeah. And it's not going to happen overnight, especially in a large company, because nothing happens overnight in a large company. Exactly. But I did really appreciate, as you said, Jill's candor and the fact that she was, I thought, very open and honest about these things. Mm -hmm. And how challenging it can be in addressing these things. Because... Mo Dollywall and I might have very different opinions about uh, an off-color joke right? in the larger context of things. Uh, Jill Cropp and I might have a very different opinion on an off-color joke in the larger context of things. But it is sort of having that conversation of, okay, well, what's important and, you know does it come down to micromanaging every interaction in your organization, which is impossible. It
0: it really, it very much is. And I have to say my experience with Jill has been incredible. I'm indebted to her for the rest of my career. She, I told her this and I I got emotional on her last day and I was a little bit embarrassed about it, but she believed in me before I believed in myself um, before I thought I had what it took to come to a major market. She convinced me that I did. And Mm -hmm. she's the reason I am where I am uh, today. And I'm so grateful every single day Um, Uh, to be walking into that newsroom among such talented and incredible people. Um, And I think uh, we are talking more about race and class now than perhaps ever before, but these are issues that needed to come to the forefront much earlier. And I think that it's up to the senior managers, um, like she formerly was, um, to make the decisions and take the actions necessary to create true change Within uh, the assignment editing process, within um, the culture Mm -hmm. uh, in the newsroom, within the comfort level that everyone has bringing up issues and and having the resources there for them to do so, those safe places for people to go, that sort of thing. um, That genuine intent needs to be there. And that is the only way that uh, they can really put true meaning behind um, their condemnation of systemic racism in relation to what we're seeing happen in the States and of course here in Canada and within newsroom culture as Mm -hmm.
1: well. And I would agree with you too. I mean, from my understanding, from my own personal experience, because Jill was the one that brought my name forward to CKNW and just chatting with her, I I thought Jill was quite genuine in terms Mm -hmm. of the effort she made. But like I said, it's (laughs) <laughs> this is such a big cultural change. It's not a couple step process so that it's fixed. It's like an ongoing thing that we continuously have to refine and, and discuss. One thing that I grapple with whenever I have this conversation is, and we're talking about large organizations in general. We're not specifically talking about any one exactly. organization. Yeah. You want representation, but you don't want tokenism you don't want people feeling like they're the token xyz whatever totally yes when you think about your experiences and you've said you've sort of felt these these different experiences how did you navigate the world of systemic discrimination and Mm -hmm. tokenism and because they all are kind of intertwined and i feel like regardless of your profession if you are working in large organizations, you're going to have to grapple with these in some way if you're a person of color, if you're LGBTQ, if you're even a woman, right?
0: Right. Absolutely. I think for me, I mean, one of the first internships I ever did, I remember, um, and I'm not going to name where it was or anything. I've done many of them. Um <laughs> Good luck narrowing it down. (laughs) I walked in there and had a meeting with the boss and I thought they were going to go over what I could expect from my internship and what my responsibilities were, that kind of thing. But instead, I was just handed paperwork for a diversity committee report, filled it out and that was it. And I was on my way. Wow. And um, I've been asked, obviously, you know, the, the classic question, where are you from? And I say, Penticton, born and raised there. No, no, no. Like really, you look really exotic. Yeah. Where, where are you, are you really f- from? Where are you from? And <laughs> deal with that all the time. And um, sometimes you pitch stories uh, throughout, again, my education or, or my internships or my career, and they're um, related to my cultural background and mm-hmm. uh, or, or discrimination. And, and they're just not understood by someone who can't understand because yeah. they've never experienced that or, or cannot understand that. Um, and, and so you really have to to work hard uh, to be able to um, push that forward because you know it it, it deserves the attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently did an interview uh, with Maninder Dhaliwal. Uh, she's an entrepreneur, very successful um, I, I want to say investor, but she's also a community volunteer who's helped so many um, young business owners who are trying to expand internationally. Recently for our leadership series, CKW and Global right, Leadership yeah. Series and she said something that really resonated with me. Um, she said you have to be so good that people can't ignore your talent. You have yeah. to just work so hard that it just cannot be ignored. And you have to let your work speak for itself. Yeah, And that resonated with me because I think un- unknowingly, that's kind of what I did. I just worked my butt off and... Uh, every single day and felt like I had to go the extra mile all the time. And I, I think that is very much because I had this unconscious belief that because I'm a person of color, I might not be the first choice. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I, if I am their first choice, it's because I'm a person of color, not because <laughs> of my merits. And right. um, that I think very much drove me in, in my earlier years to yeah. work as hard as I did.
1: I think that's like the immigrant mentality, though. Yes, it right? is. Like, it is. I've had this conversation on the podcast before, but I was ingrained, and I know many other immigrants were ingrained with this idea. And this is where you get the tiger mom, tiger parent thing from, as yeah. well as like, you have to be so much better than everyone else. You yes. have to work so much harder than everyone else yeah. just to get to that same level. And you know there's there's pros and cons about it, yeah, <laughs> when you're taught to when with with that's how you're socialized, but I think that very much is like in immigrant mentality of of being undeniable, absolutely, and that's one of those things that I've kind of re embraced in my life. I remember when c k w announced that uh, I would be an editorialist, right. it was amazing, like. I felt like so Aww. many people from the organization, from Global and Chorus, reached out and just said hello and congrats. That was so cool. People from other media organizations, you know, reaching out, saying congrats. But it's always the uh, the one or two negative comments that are going to stick with you, right?
0: That is the story of my life.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like all this goodness and you're just yes. focused on these two little things. Yes. And I remember reading, and this... At most constituted 1% of the comments and right. the feedback. But I remember reading two comments and one said token hire mm. and another said diversity quota. I'm sorry. Well, don't, you don't have to apologize. That's all good. But I, I remember reading those and I sat with it for a second and I said, you know what? I can't prove to people that I'm not a token hire or that I'm mm-hmm. not <laughs> meeting a diversity quota, yep. but I'm going to be so fucking undeniable yep. that no one in their right mind will ever think that once they see my Can't work. think
0: twice. Absolutely. And that's kind
1: of the mindset that then you have to get into, right? Exactly. So even, you know, even if you, and this is going for all people of color in all industries, even if you feel like maybe you were hired for that reason, it shouldn't stop you from proving yourself.
0: Absolutely. And you heard Jill say on this podcast that when it comes to on air staff, uh, global does a good job of I think so, ensuring okay. that, uh, representation is there. But when you peel back into, uh, the staff that we have behind the scenes, there, there, I think there is an acknowledgement across the board that there is work to be done there. Mm-hmm. That same representation is not there. And, um, that's something that I think is being acknowledged more and more. Um, and. Why is it
1: important to someone like you who is the on-air talent?
0: Absolutely. I think for me, it makes me have to do less work sometimes <laughs> in explaining <laughs> certain stories that maybe might uh, be better understood by someone who's experienced racial discrimination or um, culturally understands the significance of something more than others, that kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's le- It'd be less work having to explain certain things. Um, and also, you can feel it in your bones and in the air when you You are not, I don't want to say welcome somewhere, but just when you belong and Mm. when you truly can relate with everyone around you. And throughout my schooling, throughout my career, throughout my internships, um, I could feel when that wasn't there. And... I think if there's more representation and more people that look like you or understand uh, a different uh, way of uh, living or or, um, having been brought up, that kind of thing, a different culture, Mm -hmm. you feel that. You feel that in the air. You feel it in the indentations, in in how people speak. You feel it in everything. And um, if if that's only there with your on-air colleagues and not everyone else, you feel that. You definitely feel that difference.
1: And I think even... I mean, we know with kids, when they see people that look like themselves, Mm -hmm. they think that those things are possible.
0: Absolutely. And that
1: makes a big impact on your psyche if, in your mind as a child, a politician isn't just a white old man.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And it's unconscious in some cases, too. You might not realize the impact that has on you. There are... Some really heartening comments that I've received from parents of South Asian children, mm-hmm. uh, namely Punjabi families, who've reached out to me and said, thank you so much for properly pronouncing Pakistan or New Delhi yeah. or names, um, because my daughter or my son heard that and said, whoa, the girl on TV just said that the way we say it at home. Yeah. When typically things are anglicized. My name is anglicized. At home, I'm called Nitu, but on air, I'm Nitu. Yeah. And... I hate to admit this, but for a year of my life in elementary school, I was Nancy because my teacher could not for the life of him, pronounce Neetu. And I was like, you know what? Just call me Neetu It's two syllables. Just call me. And so for a year of my life, they literally would say Nancy Garcha to the office, please. Wow. And I changed my name for a year. And I still, to this day, Anglic, I, I identify with Neetu now and I'm conflicted. I truly am. I admit hmm. I'm conflicted by that. I I wish I didn't do, I wish I didn't Anglicize my name when I was younger. I wish it was Neetu across the board, but hmm. I don't identify that with that all the time. Um, my siblings even call me Neetu. To. If they were to call me Nithu it would throw me off. But my parents call me that. And so yeah. it's um, it's definitely, I think, for a lot of young people who watch people in prominent positions, whether it's a politician or a TV personality or a journalist, whoever it is, uh, relate look like them or relate to them in some way that they otherwise have to shut that off and turn it off for people who wouldn't understand it yeah. is huge for their Because we straddle...
1: Two worlds. Yes. And whether it's you were, you immigrated here when you were very young or you were born here to immigrant parents, it's very common to feel like you're living these two identities. Yes. Almost. Absolutely. And then there is something cool when you see someone in a position of prominence mm-hmm. embrace both of those things and kind of meld them together right exactly. they're not hiding it anymore but it's it's hard like you know I mean I'm, I go by Mo By my full name's Muhammad my middle name's Yasser so mostly no oh, I didn't people, know that yeah people would like in our in in our culture in Muslim Pakistani culture I would go by Yasser right but I don't you've anglicized <laughs> it as well yeah
0: yeah yeah but that's uh, what you identify with Why do we do that? It's just the way it
1: happened. Yes. Yeah, so you go by Mo, it makes it easy. Also, my dad's name is Muhammad, so it made it even easier. (laughs) You know, there's... It's it's just adaptation to to living here, but it is nice when people embrace those roots.
0: Absolutely, as opposed to trying to hide them, especially for young people who are so concerned with their identity, as we all were at younger ages. Yeah. I think as you grow older, you, you <laughs> release you that a bit. But yes, you don't absolutely. want to stand out when you're young, exactly. And then when you get older, you just want to be unique in every <laughs> way. It's funny how that works. Yeah, once you master one, you move on to the other.
1: <laughs> I had this conversation very early on in the podcast. With Karen Kay from Fox, mm-hmm. Karen Kun Kun.
0: Yeah, she's so lovely. She's amazing, <laughs> I love
1: her. And she was saying how, you know, when she was growing up, she didn't even want to tell people that she wanted to be in media because mm-hmm. there was no one that really looked like her mm-hmm. that was in media. Right. And now, you know, her daughter won't have to think about something like that. Oh, yeah. And I I think, as we said, you know, that makes a big different. So I'm, I'm curious about you when it comes to media, who did you look up to growing up? And they don't necessarily have to be South Asian. I'm not, that's not the question, yeah, yeah, of course. but just in general.
0: Well, everyone that I looked up to was Caucasian. Um, mm-hmm. But I, for some reason, I don't fully know where this comes from, had this belief that I would be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And it might be from, you know, my father, my grandmother, my grandfather. We just, they're they're very passionate and, and trailblazing in a sense and, and just really fight hard for what they believe in and have a really strong sense of justice. And I think I had that at a very young age. Mm-hmm. I just knew I could. I was in French immersion in Penticton, oh, wow. often the only Indo-Canadian person in my my class or actually grade. I didn't have any Indo-Canadian friends or hmm. cousins that I really hung out with that were my age growing up. I still don't actually. So I feel very disconnected from my culture a hmm. lot of the time to this day um, because I don't live with family members. I don't speak Punjabi regularly and I'm, I feel <laughs> like I'm losing it a lot of the time. I'm like, yeah, I forget how to say this. How do I say this again? And, um, and As long as you
1: have the curse words down. <laughs> all long, actually, I don't even. I don't even have those down.
0: Um, so we can I. can talk after. I, yeah, I okay. You, you it. can fill me yeah. in. Okay, yeah. What's your mother tongue? Or do you. Urdu. It? Yeah. It is Urdu. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but I, I interrupted you. you. No, no, you... not
0: at all. I, I think, you know, for me, it was looking up to mainly. Caucasian role models. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a reporter, a former reporter in the Okanagan, um, city councilor as well, Mohini Singh, who worked for Global Okanagan, and I used to see her reports, and that cool. definitely gave me a sense of wow. Look at a Punjabi woman is on television telling important stories of our community, and that mm-hmm. inspired me and um, further fueled my sense of you know be, I will I will do this, and and I was always very confident and, and knew I could, and I, I really uh, attribute a lot of that to my parents. They never. Mm held me back and told me I should become a doctor or a lawyer. You know, they always just, you know, really, really valued um, my siblings and I pursuing our passions, which is huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not that she was a direct role model or anything like that for me, but I know the importance of Simi Sarah in her household was huge growing up. Yeah. Because it was someone who looked like us on television and it was like, it, she was one of the people that reached out when the ckw thing happened and she, and she didn't have to i mean she, she just said i've heard so much about you hope to meet you soon obviously covid makes that hard but my response to her was like oh my god like you had such a big influence in our household cuz we would talk about how Cool it is to see someone who looked like us on television. Right. As like an immigrant family.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so she was definitely one of those people. And then I think as I grew older, going back to Karen Kay, like, talk about breaking the mold of what rock radio is supposed (laughs) to be.
0: No kidding. Right. Yes. Like
1: entering this very male, very white dominated space, stereotypically, and just being amazing at it. I mean, she's a. She's been there forever. Yes. And she's, like. <laughs> she
0: certainly, no, but to, to your point, she certainly has broken stereotypes in that sense. I, I think if you were to um, peel back the layers and, and look at people's inner, either conscious or unconscious bias when it comes to who you think would work in that environment, mm-hmm. she would not be the first that comes to mind.
1: No, no, certainly <laughs> not. And certainly not when she started. Right. right. Especially in that era.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: When it was all dudes.
0: <laughs> yes. And that's the beauty of normalizing what's not normal.
1: Yeah. So how do you now try to stand out in this very competitive, very cutthroat field where, you know, there is a structural dynamic at play, but then you also don't want to be a token so how do you do it yourself?
0: You know, it's funny. We talked about how when we're young, we try to be like everyone else. And then as we get older, we try to be unique. But for me, now yeah. in my industry, I, I'm I'm in the big leagues, I guess. I'm working in a major market, and mm-hmm. I'm one of the youngest people on the team. Actually, am I the youngest? I might be the youngest, actually, uh, when it comes to
1: on-air. Stab that as another crown to go with <laughs> no, your no, Miss crown. No, I don't, I don't consider it that at <laughs> all.
0: I actually admire so much about everybody I work with and I look to their skills every single day and try mm-hmm. to be more like them in a lot of respects. You know, mm-hmm. when I'm uh, blessed enough to be in court with Ramina Dea, I watch her and her process and how she does what she does so effortlessly. Um, the way she writes and presents these incredibly complicated court stories mm-hmm. in such an understandable way is beyond me. I've been covering wildfires with Aaron MacArthur and Catherine Urquhart and they know how to tell stories of people and how to relate to communities and mm-hmm. uh, Linda Aylesworth is a champion of the environment and um, you know animals and and uh, the climate and um Gone are the days of having a beat. Uh, Many of us Mm. are generalists, but she has stayed very true to the types of stories that she is an expert on. And um, I'm so inspired. I could list everybody that I'm inspired (laughs) by, all my colleagues. So I, I, instead of trying to differentiate myself, I think I try more to be like um, my very experienced uh, and talented colleagues Mm. in a lot of respects, but you can't not be yourself. I I naturally just am myself and that is some who, I think I'm a mix of like my mom and my dad. My mom is known as like the nicest person. She's so kind to everybody. She doesn't have a mean bone in her body. Well, okay. There are times when she, (laughs) when you can get on her nerves, but, and then my dad is like very passionate. And Mm. if there is an injustice, oh my gosh, there's no stopping him. And he will uh, grill someone. He will hold someone to account in his personal life. And so I feel like I'm a mix of them. That's the me too I love. The one that grills
1: people. So the one that grills dudes. <laughs> dudes in power. That's cool. Yeah. So so you think it's more of a familial thing? Like you're I just think be authentic so. to yourself.
0: I think so. Yeah I, tr- yeah. I I can't not be myself. So I, I, we all have different experiences and perspectives that we bring to the workplace and that yeah. comes through in the stories we pitch and the interviews we do and the ad-libbing I do when I throw to weather and traffic and, and, um, you know, and just talking with Paul on air, Paul Hasem, my co-host on Global mm-hmm. News Morning, as I fill in for Sonia Sanger. Um, I, I just bring myself and my authentic self, uh, to the desk every single day. I don't try to be like anybody else. But when it comes to my skill set, I do try to gain um, wisdom and and impart the skills of of my very talented colleagues. And um, that's kind of how I, I go about it.
1: Is it a challenge when, as a journalist, you are supposed to be this impartial, objective presenter of the news but you're also trying to show your own personality in the broadcast itself.
0: Yes. I am relatively new to being on a morning show. Again, mm-hmm. I'm covering a maternity leave. I'm I'm about, I think, six months into it right now. And that is something that I really struggled with at first. I was like, wait, so you want me to, like, just throw it a mark on weather and just say something about the story we just ran? But I'm not supposed to say anything about it. Right? And I can't. Like, I'm not. It's not. But it's not. I, I learned that it's it's... It's not editorializing. No. It's it's adding to um, you know as journalists we've got a, a strong amount of knowledge or a significant amount of knowledge about various different topics and so we can add our insight into a story without editorializing it and right. let our personality shine through without um, you know revealing your deepest darkest uh, you know desires or your political affiliations or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And I think too, as journalists, we naturally are just objective. Like I find in my personal life, people get, potentially my friends, if they're listening, get annoyed with me because all I do is ask questions, but like, wait, Mm -hmm. so uh, how do you feel about this? Or or why do you say you feel this way about that? I'm always just looking to learn um, in my personal life and my professional life. But I think we're just objective by nature because we are just curious by nature as well. Yeah. Um, So it intertwines that way.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. I think that the most successful media personalities are people who are invoking their inner authentic self. Like they might be turning it on a little more or maybe a little less, but it comes from somewhere that's authentic. And I think that's what resonates with the audience. Certainly the people that I've enjoyed watching or continue to watch, are those personalities? Like, because news you can get anywhere. Exactly. Right? Yes. But the reason you listen to a certain radio station or watch a certain news broadcast is because of those personalities, right? For whatever reason, they've grown on you, or even in print. It's like, you know, when a when a Sam Cooper piece drops, it's just like, you got to go. And yes. <laughs> right there, right?
0: I hear you're trying to get him on this podcast. So, Sam, if you're listening, here's a little nudge. We'd love, we'd all love to hear you. <laughs> he's
1: in. He's oh, in. Oh, he's in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Spoiler it's, alert. It's... Uh issues getting clearance.
0: Oh, I see. He's a very oh, protected I could see asset. that. Yeah. Yes, and also the stories he covers, I think put him in a lot of um positions where his his safety is like, I just want to get
1: him on so he can cry a little bit, you know? He like I want to talk a about a position. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I want to talk about how he feels covering these stories. Right. That's where my interest is. Right. Cuz I don't I think it would be a waste if he just came on and we we summarized some of the stuff. And we would maybe do a little bit of that if we were allowed. But I would just want to talk about his method and and him covering this beat. And if he ever does feel threatened. And, right. You know, that kind of stuff. So we'll see. 2021. Okay, we'll wait. That's the That's the wish. That's <laughs> yes. what I'm asking Santa for. <laughs> you said that everyone is kind of a generalist at this point. Right. If you had a beat and you had no choice, you had to pick like, two things, let's say, that you were going to cover forever, what would they be?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I've been covering such a broad range of stories throughout the duration of my career that um, I don't know if I would be able to pinpoint it. I think part of what I love about being a generalist is that you get to know a little bit about everything. And mm-hmm. the job is not to know everything about everything. It's to know how to ask good questions, how to research, how to fact check, how to get, ev- people always say two sides of the story. Sometimes there's three, sometimes there's four, sometimes you need many voices uh, to be able to tell a full story. Right. Um, but for me, it's very much about uh, uncovering um, injustices, perhaps even in the workplace, like a labor... Labor violations type stories. Um, I've done a few such uh, investigations and and felt very strongly about our ability as journalists to be able to uncover um, the truth in those situations. Um, as well, I've got a very global perspective as well, being able to localize a global story. Mm-hmm. Um, again, everybody brings their own experience to the table, and mine is I have a background of doing international humanitarian work, and uh, as a journalist. I am fascinated by how people in my neighborhood um, cope with and reckon with and um, help with a- conflicts and crises happening overseas yeah. in, in relation to their own communities and that's something that I'm always fascinated by as well and um, I think too just being a person of colour stories about racial justice and hmm. um, systemic discrimination to its core, not just talking about one instance that happened uh, that in potentially involved racism but systemic, what makes it systemic and what are some of the solutions, uh, those types of stories fascinate me as well and I love covering election <laughs> I really do. I'm a bit of a nerd that way. So everything. You just picked everything. I I know. See, that's why I preluded it with. I don't think I could pick just one because I love being able to do a little bit of everything. But
1: you know what's fascinating? And again, we're only meeting for the first time. We've obviously chatted here and there before that. I would have guessed that the second thing that you said, the humanitarian angle of crises happening around the world and your efforts to localize them. I feel like that's where you, I mean, you're Absolutely. so good at everything else. And like I said, oh, grilling politicians, <laughs> but I feel like that's your jam.
0: That, that is very much where my heart is and, mm. and the types of stories that set my soul on fire and the stories that I have paid thousands of dollars and taken many vacation days to go and do on my own time and bring back and say, is there any way I can do this instead of the other way around? And yeah, um, but that's so cool. I, I also really pride myself on being a local reporter who covers local, local issues and I have a strong sense of democracy and mm. whether that's a municipal provincial federal election or one that doesn't even relate to me in is South of the border. Right. <laughs> I, I'm really fascinated by the democratic process as well and um, value experts who have a beat and, mm. um, are able to tell a story that much better because they've been covering that topic for years and years and years. And hope to one day find my niche and have, if I'm blessed enough to be able to focus on one niche one day or one beat, I would I would love that opportunity. But mm-hmm. um, I think, especially at this stage in my career as well, I'm really grateful to be learning as much as I am and to be able to talk to people of so many different walks of life and cover a, such a broad range of yeah. issues. I love I love that about the job. Cool. Yeah.
1: Speaking of learning, you're going to teach me something. Okay. <laughs> Can you teach me the news anchor intonation? What is this voice? Where does it come from? How do I learn it?
0: I think you've got it, my
1: friend. I don't I do not have it. No. I, I am no.
0: Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. You know how you said you love news personalities. You can get the news anywhere, but you love sure to see the personality come through. That is very much the case for a news read. There's no <laughs> way to really teach it. I mean, we did have a course at BCIT. But you know, there's that where, like
1: stereotypical news yes. read, right? Where I think it's a little choppy and it <laughs> there's pauses. And it ends a certain way. You know what I'm talking about. Choppy with pauses.
0: Yes, no, very much so. You know, it's funny. I wonder whoever initially came up with that read, because I think a lot of us just hear a news anchor and develop our own version of that news anchor read. And I don't know where it initially started, but someone started it and it's become kind of the the way we all go. But everyone's got their own... um, inflections and their own way of whether they read fast or slow mm-hmm. or change their tone for certain stories, that kind of thing um, really varies. But there are some standard rules. You know, if you're reading a somber story, you're going to slow down your read. If you're reading a story about sports or something more lighthearted, a community initiative, you might read it a little faster and more mm-hmm. upbeat. Um, and then in terms of your voice, you know, you you typically speak more from your um, diaphragm and, and deeper than, than your natural high pitch. You, right. you go a little deeper than your natural high pitch, I guess you could say. Um,
1: My CKNW rants are all high pitch.
0: They are, I, don't <laughs> I they are, not know. I think they're faster they're whiny, than slower. They're, they're, they're
1: whiny high pitch gripes of the world that I like to express. Please tell me you sat
0: in your living room and practiced your news anchor read ahead of this podcast. Did you do no, that? No, I, <laughs> I came in
1: a blank slate. Like you're supposed to teach me how I do this. Right. What is, is there a a cadence that I'm supposed to adapt? I think or technically adopt. there Let's... is.
0: I had a course at BCIT where they taught what words to inflect inf, uh, inflect on, have your inflections on and when and that sort of thing. But I think at the end of the day, you really just develop your own news read based on what you've heard and what is your version of that. So okay. do you have like a sentence there on your iPad that you can just read that
1: is like a news read? <laughs> uh, I, I actually do. And the sentences.
0: Okay, let's hear, here we go. Drum roll, please, everybody. This is going to be Mo's news
1: anchor read. It's going to be terrible. Okay. When you become a reporter, it's like you talk in these chopped phrases that have to end like this. All right, there you go. I thought that was fantastic. But am I right about the chopped phrases and the pauses and... Yes. Yeah.
0: It is, we have to, when we write in broadcast news, the sentences need to be short Right. Cannot have long sentences. You cannot have run-on sentences because you will run out of breath because of the way you do your news anchor read. It is it is choppy for a reason, mm-hmm. um, not only so that the audience can grasp what you're saying. Short sentences are easier to understand than a run-on sentence or a longer sentence, but also because of uh, the sheer number of reads you have back to back to back. It, 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 it makes it easier to, uh, I think, be able to breathe in between and, and get through that many reads. But um, your voice is is perfect for a podcast or like the radio format. And um, when you go into your, I think, deeper voice and and a more serious topic, that's probably closer to a news read than I think your (laughs) (laughs) lighthearted CKW commentary segment. (laughs) But it's it's hard to teach, you know, like when I was, I remember when I was starting out, I would ask, you know, like, how do you, how do you do your read? And I would ask a lot of senior anchors that. And they always told me, you have to just find your own read. Everyone's Mm. got their own version of it, and um, you very much base it on who you look up to, or what read you you admire, or you want to be like, and then you create your own version of it. I guess. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I find it fascinating. It, I, I just was wondering, and I guess you did say like you learn to inflect certain way, uh, certain words, certain ways. So I was just curious: is this a thing that like everyone that comes out of J school knows? Or if it's just something that you just kind of adopt as you go through I, your career.
0: I don't want to speak for anybody else because I don't know what your work was like to my colleagues in the industry when you first started out. But when <laughs> I look back at my stuff from when I was a student or even when I started out in the industry, oh my gosh, I cringe. I don't think you come out of J school just knowing how to do it. I think you okay. develop it over time. It ta- and it takes work. Yes. And I'm still developing mine. I am still I still watch back at my newscasts and think I could have uh, done a better read or in uh, in like inflected on certain words differently Mm. or that sort of thing. I think it's a a work in progress for um, many of us in the industry.
1: (laughs) That's why I do love the rants. Like, right. It sounds so restrictive, like two minutes. It's not even two minutes. It's like a minute and 48 (laughs) seconds, you know, rant about whatever you want. You're like, that's really restrictive. But then when you realize like, oh, you can play around with voice and tempo and, and all these other things, it actually becomes quite creative. And that's kind of what I'm enjoying about it. And I joke about the high-pitched thing, but I think it just ends up being that way because I have a certain tongue-in-cheek attitude that I bring to it, right?
0: <laughs> Again, that personality shines through.
1: Yeah, yeah. As we ended here, your morning news schedule, we talked about this before we started recording. So you don't sleep. You're, you're <laughs> no, sleep. You're nocturnal.
0: <laughs> no, come on. I think a lot of people have that perception. I had that perception before I started working on the morning show, but yeah. we are blessed to have a consistent schedule, many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, for me, uh, filling in for Sonia Sanger again on her mat leave, um, it's Monday to Friday, 4.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. 4 4.30
1: is when you start.
0: Yes. That is when the shift begins. You roll into work. You start working on the show rundown, the scripts, um, the, you know, editorial discussions you might need to have with your producers, that sort of thing. And then hair and makeup and then boom, you're on Hmm. um, for the remaining three hours of the four hour show. Paul Hasem does the first hour on his own from five to six. And
1: um, what is the hair and makeup process like in terms of time? How long does that take?
0: Okay, I've got it down to half an hour. But if. Paul, if you're listening, Paul Haysom, he's going <laughs> to, I roll in to the studio literally seconds before we are on air every single day, just quickly putting on my microphone and saying, here, can you divide up our scripts? And it's a little hectic and I could probably get in there a little sooner, but it's it's always very... Wow. You, Paul once said to me, and this really resonated, you take the time that you have. So if I've got 40 minutes, I will use that. If I've got 15 minutes, I will get ready in 15 minutes. Wait, are means. you getting
1: ready or are people like care no, and makeup as they're doing it for you? I think
0: especially under the pandemic, a lot of on their um, personalities or, or journalists are doing it all on their own, but oh, we have okay. been doing it that way for a year, a couple of years now. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So just do your own hair and makeup. And um, I've got all my clothes at work as well and pick an outfit there and shoes are all there and
1: wow. a, a
0: room where we've each got our designated areas. And
1: See, I <laughs> thought that like each anchor would just have a team of people working on them. <laughs>
0: I think at some stations, that is very much the case, Uh, even under the pandemic, there's ways to keep it safe. But uh, no, we very much, we do it ourselves. We are, and you know, it's, We've got a little TV in there and we can watch the show and get ourselves mentally prepared. That's what I do anyway while I'm in there and, yeah. and think about the show. And if I have interviews, I think about the guests that I'm going to have on. But you're the first show on. That's so right. So, what I know. are you watching? <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching Paul usually because he's on for an hour before me. <laughs> and, folks, our 24 hour news channel, BC1, goes right. around the clock.
1: That's true. Yeah. Okay, fair enough.
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a it's a very exciting job and um I'm in bed usually by eight o'clock and awake by three thirty wow. and I it's great. I don't feel like I'm I live alone, I don't have responsibilities, I don't have children, so um, you know, shout out to anybody out there who's working on a morning show and, and has more responsibilities than me and, and does not find it you know, that I only speak for myself. Um, in yeah, terms absolutely, of finding yeah. it as as consistent as I do, but it's it's not uh, as daunting as I thought it would be going sure. into it.
1: You know what we almost just accomplished? What? An hour conversation without talking about the pandemic. And then you <laughs> mentioned it right at the end with the makeup stuff. I had stuff. to
0: slide it in. Oh, but I'm we trying. Had, did we almost make it an hour?
1: Oh, we're over an hour. I'm looking
0: for a clock. Oh, wow, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, the yeah. time flies when you're having fun.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely need to this was so much fun. I need to get you back in the new year because I want to know what you're doing then and, and where you're I will be honored to come back. What is your call to action? This can be anything and then where should people follow you?
0: Good question. Okay, um I think because we've talked so much about the issue of systemic discrimination, my call to action is to Everybody out there um, who wants to be a part of the solution or be a dismantler as opposed to being complicit, um, and I'm very much a, a part of this effort as well, to do what you personally can mm-hmm. to uh, educate yourself about your own bias or have an awkward but important conversation with someone in your life who maybe had a microaggression towards you or vice versa. Um, do what you can, take a small step in your personal life to try and be a part of um, this very important moral question of whether you want to be a part of the solution or, or the problem because if you're not taking action, you, I believe you're very much part of the latter and mm-hmm important for all of us to to do our part. So if I were to give a call to action, it would be that. And if I could as well, also be your own journalist. If you're consuming information online mm. right now on social media, through news outlets, everything, uh, double check where it's coming from and make sure what you're sharing is factual and, and the conversations you're having and the contents of them are factual.
1: Yeah. With regard to the systemic discrimination stuff and I don't want to reopen the conversation but I think that's really important to know that it is messy it is complicated it's not easy but if you go into that conversation with an open heart and open mind and you just want to listen to people and hear their experiences even if you are a person of color or yes. you know belong to one of these other groups you can learn a lot and it's it's about the intent and I think the more that we have that conversation, understanding that it's going to be kind of just Difficult. uncomfortable. Yes. And that's what I loved about that Jill interview was like, yeah, it kind of got uncomfortable at certain points, you did a great job. but in a great way. Like, yes. I don't think we felt we walked away from it feeling bad. I think we both enjoyed ourselves, but it was like, yeah, it's a tough conversation. It's one to have.
0: We are all learning together.
1: Where do people follow you, though? <laughs> are, you, are you big on the gram? Or are you like...
0: No, I wouldn't say I'm big on the gram. No? I'm probably most on Twitter. That's probably the social media platform I use the most. Yeah, uh, Just my first and last name on there that's, and on Instagram. That's a great place to... <laughs>
1: that's a great place to talk shit and cry. It's Twitter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that is where I think you and I initially connected as well.
1: <laughs> so Twitter Full um, circle. and...
0: Instagram as well, but I'm not I'm not too active on Instagram. I might not be a very entertaining follow. I'll leave that up to your your listeners to decide. <laughs> oh, fair enough.
1: I, I'll, I'll, I'll add you on Instagram. I don't have you there. There you go. This was so much fun. I appreciate your time. Thanks Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. People, catch her on Global BC Morning News. She might be grilling politicians or having to explain why someone is mooning you on live TV. Whatever she's covering, she is always killing it. She is a superstar. She is Nitu Garcha. And I am O Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.